Amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 39, found on page 39. We're still in that convenient tradition where the page aligns with the chapter. Genesis 39, and uh, in a moment I'll read the whole of the chapter. Genesis, you might recall, was written by Moses under the inspiration of God's Spirit. He wrote it for the Israelites who had escaped slavery in Egypt and were just now emerging as a true independent nation for the first time. As they came up from Egypt after 400 years, they were a very mixed group. Racially, they had intermarried with the Egyptians to some degree and other groups of people. Moses himself was in an interracial marriage, so they were a diverse group, more diverse than we often uh, give them credit for. Culturally, they were also complex. The people worshipped their ancestral god, Yahweh, the god of Abraham, the god of the plagues and of the Passover. However, they also clung to household gods and superstitions from their many years in Egypt. Moses' task then was truly awesome. He was to bring this very diverse group of people together into one holy nation, committed exclusively to the living God. Then he was to lead them to the promised land in fulfillment of God's ancient promises to their fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. To accomplish this task of preparation and inspiration, Moses was led to write the book of Genesis. With the help of his 70 elders, Moses then taught the book to the Israelites. As we've defined it before, Genesis then is a kind of origin story. In these pages, the people are restored to their true identity and given their destiny. They are then called to live that out, to embrace the future God has promised and to live in that future in the present, much as we are called today to do the same as we live as heirs of glory and heaven. Of course, there are numerous threats, numerous threats, right, to these promises. The nations, the various nations in Canaan, Egypt, they're all aligned against God. They may not even be conscious of it, but they serve the darkness and want to stop the victory of God's people. The threat of violence fills the pages of Genesis. However, I would argue, and I hope you've come to see this, that Genesis points to a much greater threat to God's promises, a threat that is not out there, out there among the Gentiles, but in here, in the heart. It's not so much the walls of Jericho that threaten the promises of God as it is the sin of God's own people, the sin of the Old Testament church. It's not so much Pharaoh's drowned army as it is the people when they were bowing to the golden calf. As we've already seen, and I hope you've noted this, in the lives of the patriarchs, it is the ordinary sins. It is the ordinary sins of lust, fear, and cruelty that threaten to tear us all apart. God's greatest act of deliverance, God's greatest act of deliverance in their lives and our lives is not his ability to overcome physical persecution, though that is wonderful. But no, 
The greatest miracle in the life of the believer in any age is the miracle of growth, of change, of becoming something you were not, something you could have never been without the grace of God. Such a miracle is desperately needed as we come to Genesis 39. Jacob has 12 sons. God has chosen all 12 to be the foundation of a holy nation. Among the 12, God has chosen Joseph as a savior and a leader for his people. But what have they done? Joseph came to his own. Joseph came to his own. He left the safety of his home and went to check on their safety. He came to his own and his own received him not. They sold their brother into slavery, turning him over into the hands of Gentiles in order to punish him. How will God's promises survive all this sin and treachery? That is the story before us. Now, please stand as we continue our reading. Chapter 39, page 39. Let's hear God's word. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us, he came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, whom you've bought among us, came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I had lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. 
As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, in this description, we see the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up the glory and his rights as heir to your throne and came taking off his multicolored robe of glory and humbling himself for sinners. We see how he was mistreated and hated, and yet you were with him, and all things prosper in his hand, even as Isaiah said. And so we pray tonight that as he is the one who prospers all things, that he would be present with us and that he would prosper this preaching of his word, strengthen us to receive it and cause us to bear a great harvest that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of our great Lord. Father, these things we ask for in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. First of all, in our text tonight, notice with me, the very first thing I think Moses wants us to note is that Joseph was blessed. Joseph was blessed. Now, we use that word a lot. I've talked about this before. We use it when we sneeze and things like that. It's actually a very important theological word. Joseph was blessed. Look at verses 2 through 5 especially. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And verse 5, from that time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. Did you know that the first great martyr of the Christian church was not a bishop or a pastor or an elder, but a deacon? Deacon Stephen was stoned to death while seeing Christ in heaven. Before his death, he testified to the whole witness of Scripture and how it was all fulfilled in Christ. He dedicated several verses to the life of Joseph. Here is what he said in those fateful moments before his death. Stephen said, the patriarchs, the fathers, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. But God was with him. Stephen, though a deacon and not primarily a teacher per se, he knew his Bible well, didn't he? More importantly, the Spirit of God was on him as he spoke. And I say that because the key phrase in our chapter tonight is the one Stephen so carefully recited for us. This all happens. All this bad stuff happened to Joseph. But, says Stephen, 
God was with him. And so notice that four times in this chapter, twice at the beginning and twice at the end of the chapter, Moses writes, God was with him. Verse 2, God was with him. Again, verse 5, the blessings or the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. Everything that Joseph did, everything he touched. Joseph went into the pit when his brothers tossed him there, right? Joseph became a slave. Joseph ran from his master's wife. Joseph became a prisoner. And yet everywhere he went and in everything that happened to him, God was with him. Remember, this was the master promise given to Joseph's father, to Jacob. Remember how God met Jacob at Bethel and showed him the staircase and said to him, I will be with you wherever you go. That staircase we noted is actually a temple or part of a temple. That's what his vision was. Now, at that time, people, almost everyone in the world, thought of God or the God's presence at certain locations and not at others. But God was promising a movable temple to Jacob. Wherever you go, I will be there. Not only is God with Joseph and all his trials and problems, he's also with Joseph in everything he does. Everything Joseph touched flourished like the Garden of Eden. Verse 3 says his master saw, here's an unbeliever, but he saw that the Lord, Yahweh, was with him and that Yahweh caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Sounds a little bit like Isaiah 53, speaking of Christ, right? All will prosper in his hands. God was not just there with Joseph. God was in everything Joseph did. We've seen this before, haven't we? Uncle Laban, you remember, put Jacob in charge of the flocks, the family business. And what happened? The business exploded. Foreign kings wanted Abraham around because he had this same blessing. Eventually, Potiphar realizes uh, that this is the way things are going, that Joseph is blessed, that God is with him, and he puts him in charge of all that he has. Now, get this. This is so important. This is not just a random gift for business. It's not just that this family has some talent for organizing and making money. In fact, if you think about it for a moment, their personal lives were often a mess, which suggests they weren't naturally successful people through some effort of their own. Instead, what you need to see, what Moses and the Holy Spirit would have us see, is that all of this is happening to Joseph because of God's presence with him. This is God's blessing. This is the direct result of God's presence. We've noted before how Moses uses the same Hebrew words to describe the flourishing of creation in the time of Adam and the flourishing of all that the patriarchs did. The language and the promises are identical. It was the presence of God that Adam lost, and having lost that, he lost all flourishing. Everything became thorns. Everything became hard, ugly, and sinful. But now, through God's gracious covenant, those creational blessings are coming back Joseph has that blessing. He walks with God. God is with him, and it's obvious to all. 
Can you see some of that, some of that in your own life? Can you see some of that in your own life? Maybe it's not so much evident in your business, but what about your family? What about your own spiritual life? Let me be clear. This is not a promise of economic prosperity. This is not me promising you to get rich. Nor is God guaranteeing to his people a happy home life or successful marriages. As these stories in Genesis remind us, God's people often struggle mightily in all these areas. However, if you look, I have no doubt you will find whispers of Eden in your life. We too are called to be salt and light in a dying world. And quite often, and even to our embarrassments, our friends and co-workers tell us that they see this in us. They see something different. Not something perfect, but something different. Maybe your boss already feels that he or she can leave everything into your hands. That whatever you might do, you will not do certain things. Maybe your unsafe family notices that though your family is not perfect, there's an organizing principle, a love in your home that they can't quite put their finger on. Brothers and sisters, these are echoes of Eden. This is a slice of paradise lost. Whatever happens next to Joseph, and things are about to go very bad, but whatever happens, don't miss it. God is with him. God is with us. And God's presence with us is always green, always growing, always living in a brown and dying world. So long as God is with his people, the sacramental tree of life is never far away. Joseph is blessed, and it's evident that God is with him. Second of all, in verses 6b, really the end of verse 6, you can see this in your ESV, it's broken out this way. Through verse 10, Joseph is tempted. Joseph is blessed, but Joseph is also tempted. Now Joseph, the scripture says, was handsome, or literally beautiful, in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put back uh, everything that was in my, in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Joseph was a handsome man. The word here used for beautiful is the same word used for Sarah, who was so beautiful. Joseph actually comes from a line of strikingly beautiful women, if you remember. They were all beautiful. They were all barren. Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. And he got his looks from his mother. Not only this, but there was something attractive about his life, wasn't there? Remember that God's blessing was on Joseph and all that he did. Have you seen this before? Some of us have. An ungodly woman can be attracted to a godly man precisely because he is a good father and husband. Precisely because he has the sense of blessing and wisdom about him. 
The same can happen in reverse. An ungodly man can become enamored with a believing woman, in part because she's so different than the other women he has known. Whatever the attraction, the master's wife relentlessly pursued Joseph. This is not a one-time temptation. This was going on all the time. Verse 10 says, this went on day after day. This is so important for you and me. For some reason, we often think that temptations are quick. We expect them to sort of come and go. And some of them are like that. But we have to face a greater reality. Some temptations are relentless, truly relentless. Some last for days, some for weeks, some for months, some for years. Victories are not always cheap and easy. The flesh, the world, and the devil are relentless. And that is pictured here in this woman and in the wicked woman of Proverbs. In just such a case, Joseph's response is so helpful and so practical. Notice that he doesn't just say no. He did that, but he also took steps. First, in verse 8, he refused her and told her why. He spoke of his faith in God. Then in verse 10, he goes further. He refuses to even be in her presence, to even be around her. Finally, when she catches hold of him, he runs for it, leaving his garment behind. Is this what Paul had in mind when he told young Timothy, flee youthful passions? Don't converse with them. Don't add up the score. Sometimes you just need to run. Sometimes, many times, you need to tell others to get help, prayer, and accountability. This is so helpful. In fact, I think this may be the single greatest example of a believer resisting temptation in Scripture. It's used constantly in the writings of the ancient church fathers and in our confessions for this reason. It's cited, for example, in our Westminster Standards in regards to the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. But what makes it so powerful and so helpful? I think the words of John Owen are helpful here. Some of our men are reading The Enemy Within on Saturdays. That book is a summary of Owen's greater works on resisting sin. Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Joseph isn't passive in resisting temptation. Resisting temptation is not just saying no. It is doing everything to buttress yourself up against sin. Genesis never tells us the name of this woman who went after Joseph. We don't know her name. But John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress gave her a name. He calls her Wanton. Wanton. In Pilgrim's Progress, she seeks this woman to seduce faithful Christian's friend and helper. Faithful, you may recall, barely escapes her. In fact, when Faithful tells Christian about the experience, he notes that he only escaped her by running and by remembering Proverbs 5, 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. How can we fight sin today? Joseph teaches us to be active and passionate in the fight, to abhor sin. That means to hate it, to name it, 
Notice how he did that. I cannot do this evil thing and ultimately to flee it. These are all important. But we have another tool that Joseph also had, but not to the same degree that we do. We live in the light and power of grace in Christ's finished work. God's grace, God's love to us in Christ is the greatest power for resisting sin. John Owen says that if the only reason, if the only reason you avoid sin is fear of judgment, you are ready to fall. You're ready to fall. You have only weak defenses. Most unbelievers know, Owen says, that judgment or consequences are going to come from their sin. But they do it anyway because fear of judgment is, in the big scheme of things, a weak defense. So says Owen, the true resource, the true resource is knowing God's grace in Christ. The law is important, very important, to convict us and direct us and to give us a holy fear of God. Those are good things. But the strongest and best thing is the gospel. Here's how Owen puts it succinctly. He says, what gospel principles do not, what a gospel principle cannot do in your life, legal motives will never do. Legal motives will never do. What does he mean? He means that the ultimate power for resisting sin is not fear of consequences, but deep delight in the love of Christ. To put it another way, sin only has power. Sin only has power in me and in you because we are not actually satisfied with God. Because I do not remember his love because I have lost sight of his promises. My vision of heaven and of Christ is dim and that makes the world glitter for me. Have you felt that? So what should we do? Here is Owen's wise advice as he reflected on the book of Romans He says, store the heart, store your heart with a sense of the love of God in Christ, with the eternal designs of his grace, with a taste of the blood of Christ and his love in the shedding of it. Get a relish of the privileges we have thereby, our adoption, our justification, our acceptance with God. Fill the heart with thoughts of the beauty of holiness as it is designed by Christ for the end issue and effect of his death. And you will, in an ordinary course of walking with God, have great peace and security as to the disturbance of temptations. What is Owen saying? A heart caught up in worship, a heart caught up in the beauty and the glory of who Jesus Christ is, even at this very moment in heaven, is very hard to seduce into sin. And Owen is saying that is the ultimate, ultimate barrier. And I think that's what Joseph is doing here. I think he's thinking about the goodness of God to him, the visions given to him, the fact that God has been with him in everything he does. He tells the woman, don't you see how everything's prospering around? God is with me. How can I then do this? He rejoiced too much in God's goodness and grace to be tempted by the things the world offers. So Joseph is blessed. Joseph is tempted. Lastly, in verses 11 through 23, Joseph is, what we'll say, put in trial or tested. In these verses, I'm not going to read them again, all of them, but the situation goes from what might be called a temptation to a trial. What's the difference? Why am I 
saying that. A temptation is something you struggle with because it appeals to you. A temptation is something that appeals to you, that draws you in. We know that Joseph was at least a little tempted by this situation because he runs, right? He runs because he's afraid of what he might do. He wisely knows that he's capable of doing this. It was a temptation. What happens next in 11 through 23 is not a temptation so much as a trial. He is utterly innocent, but he will suffer nonetheless. And so you see how this wicked woman makes a false accusation. As is often the case in our lives, ironically, she accused him of the very thing she was trying to get him to do uh, with her. She says, he tried to be with me. What an outrage. Of course, she'd been trying to arrange that for weeks or maybe even months or years. But she has the power. Notice how, did you notice when we read it, how she appeals to his race again and again and never uses his name. She calls him that Hebrew, verse 14. That Hebrew laughs at us. Who's the us? The Egyptians. He laughs at us. And again to her husband, verse 17. That Hebrew servant who you brought among us, good, decent Egyptian people. Do you see what has happened? Our black members of the church and brothers and sisters who are African-American, they recognize this. This is when the master culture takes your name from you. He's no longer a faithful and loved servant. He's no longer Joseph. He's just that Hebrew. You see, Joseph, for all his giftedness and greatness, is still, at the end of the day, a slave, a foreigner. Many people, growing up in the South especially, I saw this, many people pass themselves off as gentle and polite. They wouldn't hurt a fly. If they say something harsh, they end it with, bless her heart. But if you get them angry enough, if you catch them in the right mood, suddenly black folk, much like Joseph, lose their names. It ceases to be, my friend Bob did such and such, and it just becomes those people are like this. American history records many, more than we'll ever know, who were hanged or imprisoned simply because the master class followed the same logic, guilt by virtue of race. She had all the power, all the power as an Egyptian woman. She had played on the prejudices of her day. Her civilization was the dominant one, the wonder of the day. The Egyptian civilization was amazing in power and glory. No one would believe him, not a Hebrew slave. Is it any wonder years later that Pharaoh would not let them go? He couldn't let them go. This is part of why Pharaoh could have had their male children killed. He didn't see the Jews as equally human. That prejudice began here. It began in this hateful woman. And it continues today in every country in the world in one form or another. African-American history in our own case makes it incredibly clear to say no to the advances of a master or the master's wife will land you in prison or in death. So in verse 20, Joseph is put in the king's prison. Now pause with me. Can you imagine this for a moment? What this must have been like for poor Joseph. Here Joseph has fallen from being the heir of his father. Remember, that's why he had the multicolored coat. 
the favorite of his father, inheriting this massive little army of people and, and animals, really this gigantic business, with a bright and a rich future, he's fallen from that to being a slave in the pit. Then by God's grace, he climbs his way all the way out from being a slave in the pit. He becomes a cherished family servant with great power and responsibility. But then suddenly, unjustly, again, a second time, his, his garment is taken away from him. It's eerily similar, isn't it? And he's cast back down into the pit a second time. Do you think in the midst of that, there were moments when he wondered about his dreams? You know, those dreams when he was young, when he was 17, and God showed him the glorious things that he would do in his life. Do you think Joseph sat in prison and wondered at all? Was God mocking him? Was God having fun with him? Was this all just some kind of horrible joke that God was playing on him? Those dreams, those dreams of his youth, when God promised great things, those dreams must have felt like fairy tales. I wonder if you or I would have kept on believing or how we might have struggled in that same circumstance. We will see, of course, and it begins already here at the end of the chapter. We'll see how God delivers him. But I want you to pause here with me for just a moment before the deliverance happens. Because here, I think, at this moment in prison, Joseph's life touches. It deeply connects to the life of every believer here, and more importantly, to the life of Christ. There is something very profound here, and we don't want to miss it, because this is what has happened to many of us and will happen to all of us at some point in our lives. In your life, and I've been through this, and, and most of our older members have, and if you're young, you will go through it. It will happen. In your life, there will come a time when God says, blessed, but life seems to say, cursed. God says he loves you. God says he has a wonderful plan for you. God says you are infinitely and richly blessed. God gives us in his word visions of the great things he's going to do for us. He promises heaven and a new earth and that all tears will be wiped away. He promises to be with us wherever we go. But life, life shows us violence, lust, sin, Broken bodies, cancer, unemployment, poverty. What can we do? How can we survive when God says blessed, but life says cursed? I'm persuaded the only answer that helps, the only answer in the end that can make sense of that in my life and in your life is that we go together to the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus came down. He left his father's house to seek us. He shed his garment of glory just as Joseph was stripped of his coat. He came to his own brothers to make sure they were safe, but he came to his own and his own received him not. Full of jealousy, Jesus' brothers handed him over to the Romans. The Jews here didn't have the stomach to kill Joseph, to do it themselves, so they blasphemed God just as the Jews and Jesus did by handing him over to Gentile hands to do the dirty work. And yet all the while, in the most amazing irony in human history, their whole future depended on him. The very one they were crucifying was their only hope. In the very moment of crucifixion, Jesus was ultimately saving his brothers. So also, 
Joseph's brothers will die. They will die unless Joseph goes to the king's prison. It is through this prison that Joseph will save the lives of his brothers who denied him, cursed him, and sold him into slavery. But at this moment, in prison, he appears as one cursed and abandoned by God, just as Christ appeared on the cross. He appeared as the most cursed man who ever lived. Imagine being sold into slavery, basically, twice in your life in this way. And yet through him, blessings innumerable have come to his family. And through Christ, blessings innumerable, innumerable to Jews and Gentiles alike today. Isaiah captures this so profoundly in 53, chapter 53 of Isaiah Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. What is Isaiah saying? He is saying that Messiah will look abandoned. He will look cursed. He will look forgotten. There will be a moment when all the promises look pointless, but we are not to be fooled. He is not suffering for his sins, but ours. Do you see? Joseph is not in prison because God has abandoned him. He is there to save his brethren. Now come back to you and me. Here's what the cross teaches us if we look and think about it. It reminds us that quite often things are not what they appear. Life can make you feel cursed. You may feel abandoned. You may have done the right things. As Joseph had, obeyed God, followed his word, kept yourself pure, and then here you are with these troubles and sorrows, and you feel cursed by God, tricked, abandoned. But time will tell. The issue is time. It's all about time. God is so emphatic about our blessings because he sees it, you see, already. He sees all that we already have in Christ and all that he will give but for us, there is so often a veil over our eyes. We don't see ourselves as we really are. If you, for example, could go back, go back in time and talk to Joseph as he's being thrown into prison, what would you say? I would love to go back. I always have the impulse when I'm reading scripture. I would love to go in in that minute and just tell him, tell him it's all going to be okay. God is doing something great. He has a plan. You're going to be incredibly famous. You're going to save all your brothers. Just hang in there. I know it doesn't look good, but something great has about to happen. Have you ever wanted to do that? To tell the biblical characters how wonderful their lives are, even though they don't see it? But what if your life and my life are like that too? As God did with his son, is it possible that we only appear weak and dying right now. But in the bigger view of eternity, God is with us. That was the case with Christ more than with anyone. He looked a loser. He looked a loser, but he was God incarnate. As those united to Christ, this is our same destiny. We may look terribly unlucky, maybe even feel cursed, but God continues to give us the view from eternity. He is with us and we are blessed. The story just isn't over yet. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we are in time, 
and veiled in the flesh. We do not yet see what you have planned for us and the greatness of your love for us because of our sin. Open our eyes through your word to see that though we may live in the prison of this fallen world now, you will keep all those visions and dreams on our behalf. Great things will be given to us, a new heavens and a new earth, not because we deserve them, but because you have given them. And as you see all things, you see that reality already in its fullness and have sealed it so that it cannot be taken away. Fill your people with that hope. We pray especially, Father, tonight for the members of our church who are going through especially hard times, whose bodies may be failing them, who have experienced a loss that is incredibly difficult, who may be struggling even right now, believing that you have abandoned them to yet another 